morning. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, went and sold all that he has and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Before I preach, will you pray with me? Oh, gracious God, grant us grace to hear your voice. Grant me grace to speak your words. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do you know my biggest preaching challenge? It is not getting up front and talking in front of people. If I ever had any trepidation about that, it disappeared long ago. No, the biggest challenge I have in preaching these days is that I don't know you. This is not a congregation where I am the pastor. This is not my family. I don't know you. In fact, for most of you, I don't even know your names. And frankly, with my glasses and those lights, I can't even see your faces. <laughs> Beyond the second row, I can't see you. And for those of you whose names I do know and with whom I have some acquaintance, most of you are Sunday morning friends. We're Sunday morning friends, and that's great. I'm thankful for that. But I don't know you. I don't know your lives. I don't know what brings you joy or what challenges you have, what brings you sorrow, what burden you're carrying, or what joy has lifted you this week. I don't know what you think about, and I definitely don't know what questions you have. What do you want to hear? What do you need to hear? But most importantly to me, what would God have me to say to you here and now? I thought about that a lot. I always do when I'm preparing a sermon. And so this week, I talked to a young friend of mine. She's not from this congregation, but somebody a whole lot more in touch than I am. And I asked her, what she hears from people about Christianity and the church and Christ. She thought for a few minutes and then she said, well, from what she heard and read, mostly online, people who aren't Christian, who don't call themselves Christian, just don't believe it. They have a whole different view of reality that doesn't fit in with the Christian framework and they don't seem to be interested in changing their view. And she said then there are a whole lot of other people who self-identify as spiritual or believers, but they don't really connect with the church. 
because you might imagine so-called Christian politics one way or the other and maybe some hurt, real or imagined, that they have experienced in and from the church. And the sad fact is, as I know some of those people who have experienced that, the hurdle is just too high to deal with that. It's just easier to live your life, to stay away from the church. Don't think about faith. So people who don't believe and people who are kind of not engaged. And then there is a small group, maybe a larger group than we think sometimes, who call themselves followers of Jesus, or maybe they even call themselves disciples. And they are involved in the church or in some kind of faith group, parachurch or otherwise, but they acknowledge that sometimes they're frustrated and wondering what difference it all makes. What difference does it make that I'm a Christian? What difference does it make that we go to church and we do these things? So all of that sunk in, as she told me. It was a wonderful conversation, very helpful. And I thought about it a long time. And as I meditated on the scripture for today, the, the three verses today from 44, 46, 44 to 46 in chapter 13 of Matthew, I made a discovery I'm sure it isn't a, a unique discovery to me, but I discovered that the three groups of people my friend had identified are exactly the three groups of people that Jesus are talking, is talking to in the 13th chapter of Matthew, and indeed, almost all of his ministry. He's talking to three groups. He's talking to unbelievers. He's talking to the crowd, people just sort of wandering in the crowd, and then he's talking to faithful followers. From the very earliest days of Jesus' earthly ministry, he was preaching and teaching to his fellow Jews. Jesus was a Jew, of course, and he was teaching to the Jews. He came for the Jews. He called Jews as his first disciples. His first disciples were Jews. We don't think like that, but that's what they were, ethnically speaking, religiously speaking. He went throughout Galilee, Scripture says, preaching and teaching in Jewish synagogues. There are no other synagogues but Jewish synagogues, so he was preaching and teaching in synagogues to his fellow Jews. And most of the miracles early in Jesus' life were done either in full view of the Jewish community or certainly sometimes with the participation of individual or groups of Jews. So Jesus was all about the Jews. And everything was fine. Everything seemed right. Until Jesus began forgiving sin. And then the fat hit the fire. <laughs> Tensions arose between Jesus and his countrymen. It came to a head when Jesus finally declared himself to be, openly declared himself, explicitly declared himself to be the Son of God and Lord of the Sabbath. And the Jewish elders turned on him. They began to conspire against him but they also turned on him openly and they said to him these words which were just chilling he had just freed a man from demon possession and they say to him it is only by Beelzebub the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons they say just I'm just paraphrasing they say Jesus's authority comes from the devil that's what they're saying well needless to say Things don't sit much well with them and Jesus afterwards. Because you see, they weren't just unbelievers. It wasn't just that they didn't identify with the believer camp. They weren't ignorant. And they weren't confused. 
They'd been looking for a savior for a long time. They knew the whole story. They knew the Old Testament history and the Old Testament prophecies. They knew it. But when Jesus came, he wasn't the one they expected. And he definitely wasn't the one they wanted. Because Jesus' words and deeds did not fit in with their view of reality. They were unbelievers. Just couldn't fit. And Scripture tells us the sad thing. This is, this is what really makes me sad. It brings tears to my eyes. Scripture tells me they could have believed. It wasn't that they couldn't. It was that they chose not to. In all of his preaching and teaching and many of his miracles, Jesus was flinging wide the door of the kingdom of heaven. He was opening the door of the kingdom to heaven. But the unbelieving Jews slammed the door shut from the outside. They were not interested in entering Jesus' kingdom. So he turns. I love the way this scripture reads. It's important, so listen. He turns and goes out of the house where he had been speaking to them. He goes outside and sits by the lake. And such large crowds come around him that he gets into a boat and sits in the boat out on the water while the people stand on the hillside around him. All the people. Such large crowds, scripture calls it. That's the crowd my young friend was talking about. Hundreds, sometimes thousands of people came to hear Jesus. But even when they couldn't hear his voice because he was too far away or they didn't get there in time before he left, even when they couldn't hear his voice, word about him was just flying around the countryside through their towns and villages. What an amazing guy he was. I could just hear people talking about him. People that had heard him speak, oh, you've never heard anybody like him. You've never heard anybody who talks like him. He, he talks in a way that our rabbis don't talk. He talks in a different way. And he does things. People are being healed. Did you hear about our neighbors getting healed? Did you hear about that guy getting Did you hear about her brother? Possessed by demons. I mean, he'd been an absolute mess all of his life. And all of a sudden, he's totally free. Word about Jesus. You can just hear it. You can imagine what it was like. So people came. When he was coming near their town, he ca they came. And I don't think we ought to, we ought to light, shortchange the fact that they came. In those days, people didn't get days off. People didn't have weekends. They were surviving. So when all those people came for Jesus, they weren't like fixing dinner while they were there. They weren't herding the, the sheep or whatever. They weren't fishing while they were there. They were taking time out of their survival mode to hear this man. He was important to them. And multitudes came and they listened, surely sometimes sympathetically, for a while but then they wandered away after all there weren't thousands of people on Jesus side at the foot of the cross they went somewhere they were distracted Jesus describes them by saying the crowd didn't stay long enough to put down roots they didn't take step one to follow Jesus they came they listened they went away. They had other places to go. So thirdly, Jesus leaves the crowd and goes back into the house. But this time, the same house, his fellow Jews weren't there. 
the unbelieving Jews weren't there. His fellow Jews, the disciples, were there. Now he's speaking to the faithful followers. They have seen everything he's done. They have heard his words, and they have left everything to follow him. These few faithful, they don't understand everything about the kingdom of heaven. That's why he's, t he's teaching them so assiduously. He's, they don't understand everything, but they believe in him. And they believe he is who he says he is, the long-awaited Messiah. So Jesus teaches them. So you can't be taught if your door is closed. You can't be taught if you're walking away. You have to position yourself to hear Jesus. And so he teaches them. In these few chapters of Matthew, he's teaching them largely by parables, and he does that a lot. But he doesn't just tell them the parables, he explains the parables. He does some explication. They, he tells them what the individual aspects of the parable mean. Because he doesn't want the faithful followers just to hover around the entryway into the kingdom of heaven. He wants them to walk on in. Walk on in wholeheartedly. Get on in there. He wants them to understand that the kingdom of heaven is not an escape from this world. The kingdom of heaven is God's work in the world. And he's commissioning them to do it. He wants them and he tells them they will speak the words he has spoken to them. They will do the things that he has done in order to show his love for the world. He tells them that he's going to leave the kingdom of heaven with them in their hands with the Holy Spirit to guide them and to guard them. They could not possibly have understood all that at the time. But he told them that. And he showed them the heart of the kingdom in the parables that you heard read today. And I'm going to read them to you again because they're so short and they are so dense. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now, you know, a parable is not an analogy. Everything in a parable doesn't have an equal literal component. So we can't say this equals this, this equals this. That's not the way parables work. Parables are similitudes. They're not analogies. But he's telling them something in symbolism. When the man found the treasure, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Then he tells them a companion parable. Not the same parable, but a companion Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What does that mean? I've been talking about these three groups of people, but what does that mean? It is a word picture of God's vision. That's what imagery in literature is. It's a word picture. The person who, the people who are writing this, Jesus who's talking it, they're creating a word picture. I want to repeat what Jesus, how, how Eric describes this. I love this description. So I'm going to credit is, uh, its author. Eric describes the kingdom of heaven, the vision of God, as a multi-ethnic, multicultural story of rescue and renewal for the whole world. That's what these parables are telling them. I don't, I don't get it. I can just hear the students in the back of the class. What, I still don't get what she's talking about. What's she talking about? Like, like what's the theme of this story anyway? Who, you know, I can't tell you how many bad essays I've read over the years. People who just don't get symbolism. And they don't open themselves. It's got to be A, B, C. They're majoring in economics. Here. But, that, that, they can't think outside the letters, the numbers. Think largely. Jesus is telling you a story. He's not adding. 
He's not multiple. He's telling you a story that requires you to think. Just blow your mind. You don't even have to swallow anything to do it. You don't have to sniff anything. You don't have to smoke anything. Just think. Just think. <laughs> One time I painted on the wall of my fifth grade classroom in 36-inch high letters, think. All year long, I just went, think, think, think. He's painting them a picture. How do we understand it? Well, so Jesus knows that's the way we are. We're just so dull. And he knows that. He knows that because he explains the parables. But he doesn't explain this one because I think he, we can get it. Let's, let's explicate it. Let's just take it apart just like Jesus did. Who is the man, the merchant, what is the treasure, what is the fine pearl, pearl of great value, and how did he buy it? What, what's the buying part about it? Well, all day long, Jesus had been teaching in parables about the kingdom of heaven. If you read this part of the book of Matthew and certainly parts of the other gospels, Jesus is constantly saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, kind of a simile, not quite. So he's going on and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he's all the time describing it in different ways. In every way he describes it, keep this in mind, the one who acts is God. The actor, with a capital A, is God. The son of God is the farmer in one of the parables. Jesus even says, the son of God is the sower of the seed. The son of God is the one who sows mustard seed. I would go so far as to say, it is God who is the woman who puts the leaven in the dough. <laughs> we got to go there too. Free yourself, free yourself. <laughs> it's, it, might get, it might get deep here. Watch yourself, watch yourself. Yeah, calm down, calm down. <laughs> but here's the point, here's the point. All those parables were about planting and growing and harvesting and so forth. But now in these little two parables we've looked at today, the imagery has changed. These parables are about searching and finding, selling and buying, different, different motif. And here's what God wants us to understand. Just like God was the sower, the farmer, the landowner, the woman, God is the man in these parables. God is the merchant. Now listen, because it is so easy to read these parables and think that what Jesus is saying is you need to work really hard so you can buy the kingdom of God. That is, I can't tell you how many articles I read this week, how many commentary articles. That's what people say. This parable is about giving up everything, selling all you have to have the kingdom of God. Not a possibility. Don't even start. You know, no pawnbroker in the world will take everything you have so you can buy the kingdom of God. It won't happen. So Jesus says, listen to this. The son of man, God, the man, goes to a field and there he finds a treasure. In the same way, a merchant, that is God, Jesus, is looking for fine pearls and he finds one of great value. That searching and finding in both of these parables is exactly the same thing Jesus described in this parable. Very well known to you, I'm sure. Listen to it. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? If he finds it, truly I tell you, Jesus says, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 who did not wander away. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. There's, that's a parable Jesus is telling. And in that, in that case, Jesus, God is the shepherd. So Jesus then, at one point in Scripture, explicitly, he doesn't, he doesn't parabolize, he doesn't symbolize, he just says explicitly, 
I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. I am the seeker, Jesus says. God is the man. God is the merchant. In all of the parables Jesus tells, and and this is really important. I did not know this until I studied this week. In all of the parables, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus tells, seeking and finding describes God's search for us, not our search for God. I love that. I like to be found. I get tired of searching, don't you? Don't you? I mean, just think about it. See, when it comes to purchasing and possessing the kingdom of heaven, human beings have no agency. That's all God's. So, okay, we've got the first figure here. We have the man, the merchant God. What, so what about the treasure? What about the pearl of great price? What is that? Well, listen to these words of God spoken through Moses to the people of Israel, the Hebrew people. This is way back in the book of Exodus, near the beginning. This is way back in the story. God says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. That imagery didn't start in Matthew. Later again, now this time also through Moses, this is in Deuteronomy, the Lord has declared this day that you, Israel, are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and you are to keep his commands. Did you hear that? I could read you dozens of scriptures because the Old Testament is full of that metaphor. The people of God are his treasure, his treasured possession. That, that Hebrew word, which of course is a different word in Greek, but that word, that treasure word, is the Hebrew people. The descendants of Abraham, the Hebrew people, were the first to be called the treasure of God. But at the end of the Jewish scriptures, and this is, you've got to follow the line here. In the prophecy of Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, The prophecy starkly sets forth what had been said before, but had never really been stressed. On the day when I act, says the Lord. See that big red line? If then. On the day when I act, says the Lord, those who fear me and honor my name will be my treasured possession. When Jesus left the house, remember that? Left the unbelieving Jews behind, he just walks outside. He's like, I'm done with that. Literally, he says to them, I will do no more miracles. You will receive no more signs except the sign of Jonah, which is Jesus in the tomb. He says that. I'm done. And then he talks to the crowd, so on and so forth. And then he goes back in. But inside now are the faithful followers, the faithful Jews, the disciples. That he is physically enacting the truth of God's judgment. The unbelieving Jews neither feared nor honored Jesus. So now the disciples are the treasure of God, the faithful followers. Let that sink in. Does that include you? Yes. So having explicated the the parable so far, I'm sure you can see the resolution coming. So we know who the man is. We know what the treasure is. So how does the man, the merchant, acquire it? Well, very simply, he sold all he had and bought it. Okay, duh, put this together. If the man, the merchant, is God, how does God sell all that he has and buy something? Well, Jesus, on the cross of Calvary, 
suffered estrangement from the Heavenly Father, endured the torments of sin and death to purchase pardon and redemption for all who will receive salvation and enter eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. Don't you love that? The, uh, the disciple Jesus, the apostle, I mean, the disciple Peter, the apostle Peter, one of those guys there in the house that day, later writes this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the end of the explication. That was Jesus' message. He was telling those disciples who he was, just even more fully than he had said before. He was telling them what he's all about. He was telling them what he was doing and what he was about to do near the end of the book, <laughs> near the end of his earthly story. What is he about to do? He was telling them. So what response was he hoping for? What had he hoped that those unbelieving Jews would do? What had he hoped the crowd would do? What was he hoping those faithful followers would do? I think the response Jesus was hoping for from them is the same thing Jesus is hoping for from us today. So I'm going to spell it out in three groups. When Jesus came to earth, his mission was to reveal himself as Messiah to the lost sheep of Israel. The prophets had foretold him, and he had fulfilled the prophecies, but they rejected him. Some of those people would not believe. And so, I don't know whether our screens are coming up faithfully today or not, but I'll just, I'll go with the screen here. So to all who do not believe, God's message has not changed. It's the same. It's always the same. Repent and choose to believe. Whoa, you're asking for a lot, they say. Don't make the mistake of looking but not seeing. Don't just look at what the church and Christianity and Jesus looks like online. Don't just look at what you see it. See it. Don't just hear it like rushing past your head, but listen. If you don't believe, don't try to convince yourself. I'm not, trying, I'm not talking about that. Don't try to ask someone else to convince you. Here's what I, I suggest to people who don't believe and who say, well, I, I just can't get it. I'd like to believe, but I can't. Okay, listen. Make time. That's a big ask. Make room and make silence in your spirit to hear the voice of the holy God in you. And choose to believe in the one who loves you more than life itself. You don't need to make decisions about what parts you do and do not believe. Do I believe in the man being swallowed by the whale? Do I believe in the virgin birth? Do I... Stop. Stop at the parts that confuse you. Go to the part that you love. Don't you love to be loved more than life itself? No person has ever said that to me, nor do I think they will. I know that's true of Jesus. Because he died for us. If you're dealing with someone who is an unbeliever, or you yourself are on the edge of unbelief, or you're struggling, even though you do believe you're struggling, focus on the part that is, that is lovely and that is loving. All the rest will take care of itself, believe me. <laughs> it will take care of itself. But don't start with the Rubik's Cube of religion. Well, can I make it all fit together? Stop. Repent. That means admit who you are. Choose to believe. Okay, I'm going I'm to start believing 
in the one who loves you more than life itself. That's, that's God's message to the people who don't believe, who say, I don't believe. Secondly, what is the message to those wandering in the crowd? And I'm not, it's not a judgment to call someone wandering in the crowd. Just rootless, just haven't decided, just still thinking about it. The message is come and stay. I don't just mean come to church. I mean come to faith, come to Jesus and stay. Just stay. Listen and learn from Jesus. Take the first step. And if you don't know what that is, ask Jesus. Just ask him. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to do something weird. You don't have to say something specific. Just say, Jesus, you know, I'd really like to get in on this. I, it sounds very attractive, but I just, I just don't get it. I, I don't know what you want me to do. Just listen. Don't, don't jump and, and start doing a bunch of stuff other people tell you to do. Just listen to Jesus. What does he want you to do? And I think here's an important part. Tell Jesus who you are. And listen to all that he has for you. All the ways his love will help you be the very best person you can possibly be. That's just, that's a gift. Don't you want that? Don't you want life to be as full as it can be? See, Jesus has that for you. I don't know what that means. But you have to stay. Listen to him, not to me. To him. And then the third group, and I'm going to assume there are a number of these third group people here, faithful followers, what is Jesus saying? If you have already accepted the welcome into the kingdom of God and, and you think, okay, I've done it. Jesus says to you, remember, may or may not get a slide here, remember, you are not your own. You are bought at a great price. Your life is not yours to live the way you want to just because you've checked in at church. Because I have given you a commission. That's why Jesus saves us. Not just so we'll be full of ourselves. Jesus saves us because he has a commission for us. He has a mission, and here's, here it is. To extend yourself toward others in the sacrificial love of Jesus. When's the last time you put yourself out for somebody else? I mean put yourself out for somebody else. Time, talent, energy, money, comfort, convenience. Put yourself out. And I'm going to paraphrase the words Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let the light of God's love shine through your life. That others may hear your good words and see your good works. So that it will, they will give you an opportunity to tell them that love comes from Jesus. Love comes from Jesus. The king of the kingdom whose treasure you are. Amen.